Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hello, everybody. Hey, how's it going? This is Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show, and I am talking to you from Los Angeles Today on the program, my guest is Mary Laura Philpot, author of the memoir and essays entitled Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives. I am putting on a show. I'm, I'm trying to entertain you and I'm trying to give you a, a good story and a good experience and light up all your emotional circuits and make you feel make you feel like you've been to a show, not just like, oh, I read these words on the page. Okay, I guess she got the point across. All right, that was Mary Laura Philpot. Her new book is called Bomb Shelter, available now from Atria. Bomb Shelter is at once intimate and charming and emotional and raw, while also managing to be consistently funny and warm just a pleasure to read. It's a book about family and fate and fear and love and death. It's about the unexpected turns that life can take, especially life as we experience it today with all of its intensifying complexities and existential terrors and all the rest. Bomb Shelter, I should also mention, was the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The Nervous Breakdown is an online literary magazine that I founded all the way back in 2006. And it has its own monthly book club. You get a new book delivered to your door every month. And I interview the book club authors on this program. For more information on how to join the book club, just head over to thenervousbreakdown.com. I should also mention that I usually release episodes with a book club author in the corresponding month of their feature. So with Mary Laura Philpot, whose new book was our March selection, under normal circumstances, her episode would have aired last month back in March or yeah, two months ago. 
Or wait, wait, was she the April pick? I think she was the April pick. I'm all disoriented, but you know what I mean. The point is that uh, I broke my kneecap, as many of you know, and then I had COVID. And both uh, Mary Laura and I were traveling for spring break with our kids and so on and so forth. So my conversation with Mary Laura Philpot was delayed, and I'm very pleased to share it with you today. I had such a nice time meeting her and talking with her. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. Today's episode of the Other People Podcast is brought to you by Ig, publisher of my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is now available wherever books are sold in trade paperback and ebook editions. There is also uh, an audiobook edition of the novel available from Tantor Media and Highbridge Audio. That edition is narrated by me. I read the audiobook. Be Brief and, uh, and Tell Them Everything is a work of autofiction, among other things. It is a meditation on the act of creation and a midlife reckoning with love and death and failure and grief. It is a book that over time became about its own making. It's a personal story, hopefully a darkly funny one. And uh, one more time, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now from IG. So yeah, my book uh, is out there. It published last week on May 10th, and I have been very busy ever since with events and correspondence and doing a few interviews and social media stuff, all of the things that go along with releasing a book into the world. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're wondering what, it's, what it feels like to publish a book, what I would tell you is that it's kind of a strange mixture of elation and embarrassment and concern and hope and gratitude and quiet terror. It's just a big melange. And I returned to social media for a couple of days last week. As most of you know, I don't run the social media accounts for this podcast. And those are the only social media accounts that I have. I'm, I'm not on personally, but the Other People podcast is on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And those accounts are usually handled by Joseph Grantham, the podcast's social media director. But considering that my, my novel was publishing, I decided to go back onto social media for a couple of days to say hello and help to promote it. And there in particular, I felt, I guess you would call it like a sugar high. There's kind of a sugar high type feeling to publishing a book. It delivers a kind of roller coaster effect. It's a lot of dopamine all at once. And then after it's done, you sort of feel like you have a hangover. It's not entirely dissimilar to like being a kid on Christmas day at about 11 in the morning after all the presents are opened and it's done with, and you've eaten a bunch of candy and you're happy, but you sort of feel gross. And then you're also in a state of mourning because now it's, it's over with. There's no more anticipation. You have to wait another year or in the case of publishing, you have to start all over again and write another book. But overall, 
the book launch is going very well. And I'm very grateful to everybody who bought the book and supported the cause or wrote about the book or interviewed me either for a print publication or interviewed me for a podcast. Uh, Be brief and tell them everything has already sold beyond my expectations. Like pre-sales numbers were uh, very strong, especially for a book like this published by an indie press. And, you know, I only have so many friends and family members, so... I'm pretty sure that the reason the book has been doing well initially is largely because of the people who listen to this program. So I owe you guys a lot of thanks for supporting me and buying the book and reading the book and spreading the word and so on. It means a lot to me, and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. And on top of that, I've been receiving some really kind notes from people who have read the novel which is really the best, especially when it's a reader you don't know, because then you really believe it. Like if it's your mother or your college friend or something, you never know how much they really mean it. (laughs) But to hear uh, nice things from complete strangers, I think that's like the best for an author. So if you're out there and you read a book, or if you're reading a book right now and if you really like it, Uh, Tell the person who wrote it, write them an email, tweet at them, take a picture of the book and say something on social media or on Goodreads or Amazon, wherever it is. Authors will love you for doing this because otherwise we're just flying blind. We have no idea what's going on. You put a book out into the world and maybe you know that it is selling some copies, but you don't know who's really reading it and how they're receiving it. So that's my advice to you. Authors are very easy to reach and just delighted to hear from readers most of the time. So, I don't know. Email your author friends. And, oh, one more thing uh, before we we begin with the main event. Uh, I do have some events coming up. I will be in conversation next week with author Matthew Clark Davison for Booksmith in San Francisco. That is happening on Tuesday, May 24th at 9 p.m. Eastern. This is a virtual event online. So wherever you are, you can join 9 p.m. Eastern on May 24th. I will be reading from Be Brief and tell them everything. And then I'll be talking with Matthew Clark Davison and maybe taking some of your questions. To sign up, just go to the Booksmith website, RSVP. Uh, And then if you live in Los Angeles, I will be reading in person at Stories Books in Echo Park on Sunday, June 5th at 5 p.m. for an autofiction reading series hosted by Caitlin Forst. So please come on out to Stories on June 5th at 5 p.m. if you live in Los Angeles and say hello. It should be a good time. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, so today's guest is Mary Laura Philpot, author of the memoir in essays entitled Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, out there now from Atria, an official TNB book club pick. 
Mary Laura Philpott's last book, published in, I believe, 2019, is called I Miss You When I Blink. It was a national bestseller. She has published essays in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and elsewhere. And she is also an Emmy winner. She used to co-host a literary interview program on Nashville Public Television called A Word on Words. So kind of a kindred spirit and just a wonderful person to talk with. I had so much fun meeting her, as I said, and I am delighted to share the conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Mary Laura Philpott, and her new book, One More Time, is called Bomb Shelter. Well, I am here in Nashville, Tennessee. I am in my office and I'm making air quotes with my fingers because it's actually just an abandoned end of a hallway that no one uses in my house where I have stacked up books and a desk and there's no door. I'm sitting in front of a window because I realized during the pandemic that ring lights give me migraines. So no more ring light, no more artificial light. I sit in front of a window and because it is springtime in Tennessee, all the trees outside the window are just hanging and dripping with bright yellow green pollen so there's a little bit of a greenish cast on this room at or this space at this time of year if i look green it's not because i'm sick it's because of pollen no the lighting is great i feel like you're you you look like you have a ring light on you which is great the highest compliment I, one can pay someone in I, the age of zoom <laughs> i hate my ring light i, I never want to use it again yeah, but in the absence of like i mean i you know not to i, I feel like vanity is sometimes slagged too much uh, I think that it can be a bit of a virtue as long as you don't overdo it. And I should, yeah. you know, in the absence of proper lighting in the age of Zoom, it is sort of a buzzkill to be like, God, I look, is this what I look like? Like, I know you want to be properly lit. There's nothing wrong with that. I right, don't think. right. Fair enough. So uh, I loved reading your book. And I think this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it the second or third book in a row where you have worked like kind of in miniature, like a mosaic style memoir and essays? Is this your mode or is this the second? This is the second one and this is definitely my mode. This okay. is how I this is how I process. Okay. But I want to talk about this because I think that I suspect that, I should say, and I seem to have like corroborating evidence that writers need to find what they do well. Like they need to find their mode. And yet I, as a writer, will often apologize for my mode. Why do we apologize for our modes? <laughs> Uh, or we resist it. It's like, no, actually, what I am is a I'm a novelist in the tradition, you know, in the 19th century mode, right. you know, and like, but eventually, I, I think, hopefully, we surrender to, like, the way that we write. And, and I think when we do this, actually, readers appreciate it, because it's the most authentic and vital and all the rest. So I want to talk to you about your history, like as a writer and mm -hmm. those apprentice years and the trial and error that we all go through as we work our way towards arriving at our own voice or our own mode. And then also, I just want to talk about nuts and bolts stuff in terms of assembling a book like this and the challenges of making something that is like written in mosaic cohere, yeah. um, you know. So why don't we start, you know, back in the earlier years when you were starting out was there resistance? Did you always know this was the way that you were supposed to do it? Or did it take some failure along the way to kind of figure it out? I wouldn't say there was resistance, although I will say I, I do a little bit like you just said, I tend to downplay it when I say I'm, I'm an essayist. I say that I'm a one trick pony and this is my trick. This is the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> I do know how to do other things. But this, 
like you said, this is the thing I've found my way to. This is this is my mode. But I've started out as a writer. Um, I left my first job out of college. We'll start there. Was with Accenture, which, if you know anything about that company, it's a management slash software consulting firm. The people who go to work there straight out of college are coding software. I was an English major. It was the only job I could get when I pulled out of law school at the last minute. I stayed a couple of years. I met some lovely people and it was a terrible fit. So that was my brief first jaunt into the professional world. I left there to go work for a children's hospital in Atlanta in the marketing department. They were hiring a copywriter. And that job was the first time I had ever been paid to write. And what I was writing was web copy about diseases. I was writing uh, newsletters and fundraising copy about families with sick children, heartstring. It was kind of a combination of like heartstring tugging stuff and like hardcore medical information. And I come from a family of doctors. I'm the only English major. Everyone else in my family tree is a scientist. So that felt very comfortable to me. That was like a melding of what I knew how to do and what I had come from. I worked there for a few years. Then I went to work for the American Cancer Society, which was headquartered in Atlanta. <laughs> More diseases. Um, but I worked my way up at the American Cancer Society into sort of an editorial director national position. So I was able to have some creative control over different informational campaigns and work with brilliant people. I got to work with the Ad Council. So I was I was doing all these sort of corporate writing jobs, but I was I was honing my craft in my own way. Once I had my first kid and I decided I was going to go freelance and, and stay home and work from my own kitchen office, I started doing speech writing and ghost writing. And that is where I learned how to mimic other people, which is a fun and strange skill. But I also learned how to write within the parameters of an op-ed. Like I could write an op-ed for a newspaper as under the name of a CEO. And I could write a speech that was meant to um, compel people to do something, to give money or to become aware of something or whatever. So I was learning how to tell a story through speech writing, which is its own kind of beast. I did that for several years. And it was when I got sort of sick of imitating other people's voices that I started writing in my own voice and writing essays, which are not all that unlike kind of a melding of an op-ed and a speech um, in my own voice and starting to kind of send those out one at a time to newspapers. And the New York Times was the first big, like big place that accepted something I wrote. So I found my way here over many years. But once I found my way to that personal essay format, I felt like, ah, this is it. That's well said. And I think sometimes what we do as people and as writers is we have some ideal like, mm -hmm. like, this is what I want to be, or you have a hero, you know, and it's like, oh, I just want to be the next so-and-so or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And then anything that's not that feels like failure or the wrong way or something. And I think the way that you did it is wiser and healthier. I feel like, <laughs> I, I do, I, th I think you kind of have to take what life gives to a certain extent. I mean, you try to impose your will on it a little bit, but um, I think when you you do it the way that you did it, you know, you learn along the way one way or another, even if it's something that feels a little bit far afield from what you actually are interested in. 
and it ends up informing it somehow and you blend it in. I don't know. It just seems like a more organic process rather than trying to like, like white knuckle some dream, right. you know? Right. I would love to take credit for having done that on purpose, but I, I really, it was such a kind of falling backwards way to do things. When I got out of school, I, I, I mean, I, obviously I knew there were people who wrote books. I, you know, we had authors come to my college all the time, but when I thought about writers, people who were professional writers, I thought about novelists and I'd never wanted to make up stories. That just that wasn't something I was interested in. And I thought about journalists who wrote, you know, very fact-based, research-based stuff. And that to me seemed both a little bit boring and a little scary because what if you got a fact wrong, you could get into big trouble. So in my mind at the time, it never occurred to me to dream of being a writer and of writing books because I just thought those aren't, neither of those are things I want to do. Hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, so you found this kind of form that suits you um, creatively and personally. And when you say you found your voice, like you really did find your voice. Like this really feels like Mary Laura on the page talking to me. There's a, a wonderful charm and intimacy to this book and to your work. Uh, and it's, it's often said in reviews, you know, there's like a, it's like having a friend with you or something. <laughs> uh, I, I love that. That's it. I will say though, that's a, I don't know whether the right phrasing is that's deceptively simple or deceptively difficult. But what I mean is it, it maybe looks, it's meant to read easy and to be an easy thing to take in, but it's very hard to do. And I know that not just because I do it and it, it's, you know, I can look at the difference between my first draft, which is often very stilted and formal and complicated, and my final draft, which took work to sound like. I'm just speaking into your ears, but also because I read books by people who are really good at it. I remember discussing this with um, our Eric Thomas, who is a fantastic writer. His book is called Here For It. We went out to lunch one day over tacos. We were talking about how difficult it is to perfect a piece of writing so that people will think it was easy. It's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And like the way, the way I always uh, appreciate a book that does that, you know, and, and your book too, I should say, like not only does it go down easy, but there's a lot of great compression in it, which I uh, really value as a writer and as a reader. Uh, like to me, that's the job. Like I feel like it's like, how do I get as much across as possible without anything feeling like it's missing but without wasting motion or wasting yeah. people's time. And so yeah, it's hard. That's, but that's the work. Like that's yeah. the work. And maybe when a book, like for me as a reader, personal taste, like runs a little bit long to me or I'm like, oh, they didn't finish, you know, or something. Yeah. Like that's yeah, the Yeah, sense- there are a few drafts away from where they needed to land. Yeah. And so I really appreciate that because this is not easy reading from a thematic or subject matter standpoint. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And yet you're imbuing a lot of the, you know, pretty much all of the stories somehow with humor or there's, you know, there's at least a, a dollop of that to kind of help the medicine go down, uh, which I also relate to, like, not only because it's just like an emotional response to like existential terror and all the rest, but I also <laughs> think it's like, it's just, a, I think it's just a way that certain people process stuff in life and a way that people communicate. I, I think it's like, it's considerate. It's like, you know, we're going to talk about death right now and like some horrible <laughs> disease and plane crashes, but like, right. I'll throw in a few jokes. You know? We'll make it feel nice. <laughs> yeah, well. I think that's a, I, I think a little bit of that is a Southern woman thing. I think it's a, 
Are, are you calling me a Southern woman? Is that what you're doing? Yes, Brad. You're <laughs> such a good Southern woman. I, I mean, I, for me anyway, it, it reminds me of like being little and watching my mother throw parties and like make sure that everyone was tended to. And do you have a drink? Okay. Well, do you have your cigarettes? Does everyone have everything they need? And, and now I'm picturing the parties at, and the party that is actually coming to my mind is like the, the reception after my grandfather died. Like, a good hostess can make even a funeral feel like a good time. And that's a little bit of what I'm doing when I invite you into these stories about my life. I'm the host and you are the guest and I'm going to make this an entertaining experience for you, even when we have to go through the hard stuff. Yeah. I love that. analogy. like, I love comparing like writing a book as being a host and like inviting somebody in, which you really are doing. Yeah. You, you do yeah want, that's you, the job. You want to make sure people have an okay time, even if it's tough. Right. And you want to you want to dissolve that barrier between here I am making a story and there you are reading a book like you want to just completely dissolve that. So it's more like here we are talking and I'm telling you this story and it's you're feeling it yourself as I'm telling it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so from a structural standpoint, uh, I want to talk about like working in miniature. So like you take like an individual essay or a bit of memoir or however you want to categorize it and it might run six pages in the book. Mm -hmm. And then you accumulate a bunch of these. Like, I don't know exactly what the number is, 20, 30. Something. I think it's like, you know, what's weird is I think it's 32 in both books. I think I Miss You When I Blink and Bombshelter both have 32, which was not intentional. Okay. Maybe you should stick with it. <laughs> My lucky number. <laughs> okay. So, but you have, you know, these things, a lot of them in the book together, sequenced a certain way, working with each other in subtle ways often, you know, there's kind of, a, it's tricky with structure, I find, because it's something that as a reader, sometimes it's really explicit and obvious seeming and you go, oh, wow, beautifully constructed. But a lot of the time for me, it's like, feels right. It's more like that, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, it feels right or, or it feels wrong, you know, one of the two. But I think that a place where I can imagine writers working in this mode might get into trouble is like by thinking like, well, they're each individually good and I like all of them and I'll sequence them as best as I can and we'll stack them together. And it's not that simple. Like I want to hear you talk about trying to make the thing cohere so that it doesn't feel fragmented or what's the word that you'll get in a review that's not entirely kind. They'll say it's like episodic, you know, or they'll dismiss oh, yeah. it, you know, those kinds of things. Like, how do you yeah. how do you avoid that? Like, are you doing things like uh, that you can point to, like in the edit in, in particular that are helping you ensure like a structural integrity? I mean, first of all, I would just say in my mind, essays and and memoir. And for people who are listening, you can envision me right now. My I'm holding my hands up over my head like I'm making a big long timeline. I see them on sort of a spectrum. So an essay collection that is just a essay collection linked maybe by theme or by topic that sits over here at one end and then a memoir that you wouldn't even think to call an essay collection where you're just like that is a memoir about a piece of a person's life that sits over here on the other end and maybe it's made of chapters or whatever but the memoir in essays sits somewhere in between these two ends of the spectrum to me my my last book i miss you when i blink is somewhere in the middle it is memoiristic in that it has some narrative some narrative drive and a narrative arc but it's mostly connected by theme bomb shelter i think of more like a memoir 
it's built out of essays because like I said, I'm a one trick pony and that's my trick, but it's, it's very much one story. So when I'm putting together in either case, when I'm putting together the essays that become the chapters, I'm not thinking so much like, I like all of these, what would be a fun order? I've, I've always believed whether it's I'm reading a novel or I'm watching a movie or whatever, that structure is story. So what you per- put first, that's not just like, here's the best one I've got. Let's start here. <laughs> it is, you know, which there are books that basically are doing that. It is telling you, here's the question we're going to be answering, or here's the dilemma I'm setting up, or basically here's where we are. It's the go button. And then what comes after that is responding in some way. And what comes after that is responding in some way. So the order isn't just what's the best order to tell this story. It is, what is this story? That's what that, you know, there's that much importance to the order that these things go in. With I Miss You When I Blink, which is more of a memoir and essays kind of middle of the spectrum book, I got that order as close to right as I could by printing out the essays and laying them out on my living room floor and actually moving them around like a jigsaw puzzle and making like I wanted them to make this little rainbow shape, this arc. So I moved them around. I took scissors. I cut them into pieces. I actually ended up changing some of the essays, like taking the ends of some and sticking them to the beginnings of others because to serve the greater story that needed to happen. That one I put together that way. I had all the pieces. Then I moved them around to make sure that they told a story. This one, Bomb Shelter, I did. It's not that I necessarily wrote it in chronological order or wrote it in the order that you're seeing it on the page because I had multiple essays going at one time. But as I was writing them, I was clicking them into place because I knew the story I was telling. I knew where I wanted to land. I knew I knew the last line of this book halfway through writing it. I, I was like, that is where we're landing the plane. Now I've just got to get us there. So it was a little bit different with each one. Yeah. And you talk about, and without putting you on the spot, you talk about Bomb Shelter telling one story. Do you know what that is? I mean, I, is it something you can articulate? <laughs> I, mean, I can try. Yeah. Um, I think it's the story, you know, I use this little once upon a time when I'm trying to find shorthand for a story. It's once upon a time there was a girl who grew into a woman who loved control and who felt like if she just loved everyone hard enough and loved everyone right, she could keep everyone in her world safe. And then something happened that turned her whole world upside down. And she had to figure out how to get up and keep going. Now that she knew her whole operating principle didn't hold. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. That's well said. I I, I mean, it it makes me think I can relate. I mean, my, uh, I have a son with epilepsy, cerebral palsy, and a genetic disorder. Okay. Um, so I'm right there with you. So when I yeah. saw, when I opened this book, I was like, oh, okay. So here we are. We're on familiar ground. <laughs> yeah. I know, <laughs> it, you know, I hope it's not too much of a spoiler to share that like the book has its beginnings with your son having a seizure. Yeah. And that's a really powerfully scary and destabilizing experience for a parent. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, and you know, it's interesting now that I'm thinking about it. My daughter had, um, oh God, what do you call it? What's a seizure you get from a febrile seizure when she was oh, yeah. when she was two? So oh, both of my kids have had terrifying. seizures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember being at home and the sitter, like I was working from home that day. My wife was out 
And the sitter had my daughter at the library near our house. And uh, she called me and she said, she's not breathing. That's what oh she said. Oh, my God. Oh, my <laughs> God. What a phone call to get from the sitter. Yeah. So then I'm like running up. The, I literally was running up the street and I was hyperventilating almost. Oh, I was my like, God. I was a new parent, too. It was my first right. child. So like, you know, and then my son, uh, I've been through that where, you know, he he's six years old now, but he was he's had four, five seizures and I was with him for one of them. We luckily were just like lying in bed and I just looked over at him and then you're just like the same weird calm that you described. Yeah. Even though yeah. you're like inside, you're just panicking, but what are you going to do? And then. No, it's that calm. It's like that. It's like Sally Field and Steel Magnolias where she's just like, give me the juice. Okay. We know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just it takes over because that's all you can do. Right. And also like, if I'm being honest, especially once the, like the, the main part of the seizure subsided. And this is what I don't think people who have no experience with epilepsy realize is that after a seizure, at least in a young child, like the person is offline. Oh gosh. Yes. They're not themselves. They don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. That was, that to me was the, and I, I tried to convey this in bomb shelter, the scariest part of the whole thing of that first seizure, that one that, that we witnessed that sort of made us realize, oh, we need to take him to the hospital. And then we realized he had epilepsy was, I mean, the seizure itself was scary. But remember, I worked at a children's hospital, I had read a lot about how these worked. And I knew, at least in terms of immediate, you know, rescue operations, I knew what to do, you know, put something <laughs> soft under his head, like I got that part. It was afterward, when he regained consciousness. And I said, I don't know why this was the first question I asked, but it was, do you know who I am? And he shook his head. And that was just, yeah, that's one of the, I, maybe the scariest moment of my entire life. My boy looking back at me and shaking his head. Yeah. 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 I mean, my, my son will have them and then he'll sleep for like, he'll be like, I guess what you call a sleep, like seizure sleep for like 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. you, you cannot wake him up. So you're no. just sort of like, you know, you're sort of sitting there. I'm just like sitting there watching him, like putting my ear to his nose to make sure the breathing is normal and all that kind of stuff. But when you can't wake your child up, like you can't like, you know, jostle no. him. That's a scary, you know, it's a scary feeling. But Terrifying. There's also some part of it. And maybe you ha had this too. Like there was, I remember a moment where I was just like looking like, like you had this moment of self-awareness where you're like, wow, this is happening. Yeah. And it kind of slows down and you're almost calm with it in a weird way. I don't it's, know. I had that. Th there were multiple little snapshots, snapshot moments of that, that morning of, of my son's first seizure. I remember dialing 911 and looking at my fingers hit 911 and going, did I just dial 911? Like, this is like on TV. <laughs> People dial. I, and I, you know, for the life of me, I can't remember if I'd ever dialed 911 before. I guess I haven't because that was so surreal to me. Like, that's my finger. That's the button that says nine. That's the button that says one. And I just dialed that. Like that was my surreal is this really happening thing. Yeah. 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 I should add for people listening, just in case they have small children, a febrile seizure is fairly common. It's when your child has a fever spike and they're very young. And I was told by the 
paramedic that she was like, it's okay. She'll be fine. And she was. She hasn't had one since. So I'm knocking on wood. There you go. I'll knock too. Um, but you have different kinds of seizures. They used to be called grand mal. And you do a great job of explaining this in the book. I'm already, of course, forgetting the technical term. You might... Tonic-clonic. Tonic-clonic. That's what it is. So the tonic-clonic seizure is the seizure that I think of the popular imagination. Right. The falling on the floor and shaking. Yeah. All, all that kind of stuff. So... You know, I think what we're talking about, like underlying the, like just the mechanics of the medical stuff is fear. And mm -hmm. I can't think of a greater fear, like a deeper, more powerful fear than the parental fear of something happening to one's child. That's it. And I faced this, like, you know, where you're like, oh my God, like, like I, I can sometimes be a little bit like jokey about it. I'm like, well, this isn't, thank God, this isn't like a, a, a fatality, you know, like it's not like a a death thing, but it's, right. it's a really bad thing. So if it's like, it's like, is this like the bronze medal for fear? <laughs> you know, like you start to grade your fear, right? but it's significant. It's, it's significant to have something, a serious yeah. illness affect your child and to have to like, you're like, okay, so this is the thing that in the back of my mind, I've always been afraid of. And now it's here. It's, it's as high as the stakes get. I mean, it, it is short of, like you said, short of a fatality. It is, it's the moment, God, it is, you, you were describing this well when you were talking about how they're sort of asleep. It's, it's a moment where you see that just spider web, tiny, thin line between life and death and whatever is on the other side of consciousness. And you see your child go over it and it, and you can't stop it and you can't control it. It is, I feel like I've on this tour that I've just been on, I've had so many fun conversations with other memoirists. We've been talking about personal nonfiction and the things we write about. And, and I generally sort of describe my brand or my type of nonfiction. It's just, I write about the everyday. I write about the mundane. I don't write about, you know, escaping from a pirate ship or pulling off a heist, but really this this everyday mundane thing of, of loving a mortal human being is the highest stakes thing there is. And when it comes down to a moment where something happens, like they have a tonic-clonic seizure and they are gone, they are not there, th that's as life and death as it gets other than actual death. Right. And it's like... It's just that realization of that, oh God, I know this stuff happens to some people. I hope it doesn't happen to me. And then it happens to you <laughs> or it happens yeah. to someone you love in particular, right. you know? And so it's a lot to process. I can understand. I mean, I just wrote a book about this stuff too. I mean, it's a, I, I can totally understand the impulse to end up writing a book about it because with epilepsy, as you describe in the book, you know, it's not like, oh, you have the seizure and then you take the meds and then you're done, you know, like- right. There's so much trial and error. So much trial and error, getting the meds right, uh, lots of side effects, like behaviorally in a young child. Like we have to up my son's dose of Keppra. Yeah. And like for a month, he was just like, I hate this. And he'd punch. And like, he, you know, all of a sudden we're like, he's like the Incredible Hulk. You know, he'd like yes. just, there's major like behavioral shifts. And then his body, as he grows, his body adjusts to the dose and all this stuff. And that's got to be so hard because he's little and growing so fast. So he had a seizure, what is it, a year ago, and then they bumped it up a little bit, and then he had another one. So then they mm. bumped it up a lot because mm -hmm. they're like, you know, we're just going to get him up here so that he can grow right. into it. But then you have to live with 
him all the side effects suddenly being like hulk stump i want to kill you and you're just like you're five you know like, please <laughs> um but you know there's that and then there's the you know there's the stuff that you have to consider like swimming becomes terrifying oh my god yeah you have a what a college age child is he teenager college age he is in college and his favorite place in the world i write about this in bomb shelter his favorite place in the world is the summer camp on the coast where he grew up going every summer and his whole goal in life was to become a counselor and to work there all summer in the water driving boats, helping kids fish. I mean, as close to water as you can get without being an actual fish. And we had to jump through all sorts of hoops to make that possible. You know, having his neurologist here speak to the camp board about here are the safety requirements you'd have to have. You know, he needs to wear a life jacket. Of course, you would not send him out driving a boat alone. No one should be doing that anyway. Right. Um, you know, there was so much negotiating back and forth to make it so that he could still go do that because the camp's initial position was, nope, you know, if, if you're not seizure free, which if you have epilepsy, you can have really long periods of being seizure free, but you're never actually seizure free. If you're not seizure free, you cannot come here for the summer. And his doctor's point was epileptic people can live full lives and should be allowed to live full lives. And there are safety measures you put in place sensibly, but there's no reason he can't go. Anyway, we fought through all that and he was able to go and be there for the summer. But I don't think I slept a night that whole summer, just being terrified that he was near water. He was away, you know, that first summer he went back, he was away from me for the first time since his diagnosis. There was, um, what age was he when he was diagnosed again? 15. 15. Okay. So there was an actor a little older than he was, a, a teenager who died of SUDEP, sudden unexpected death oh. and epilepsy in his sleep. I've that read that. I've read summer. that. I've read that wiki. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and I had never heard of that. Like that happened while he was gone. And I discovered that that was a thing that could happen while he was gone. Yeah. It's just a lot. Yeah. I mean, we have a baby monitor in my son's room. He's going to be seven in July. And I'm like, my wife and I will talk and I'll be like, I guess this is like, he's going to have this when he's 18. <laughs> like, we're just going to keep the, we have a video monitor on the kid. Cause like, you know, like, what was it? He woke up crying the last time he had a seizure. My wife went in and was with him. I was with him the other time. We're like, has this happened when he's been sleeping? At times and you we've, don't know. And you don't know because we've just been like snoring in our room. It's like- Probably. It's, probably. And it's intolerable to think about that. So it's like, yeah. you know, as long as he'll tolerate it, we're going to, we will be surveilling him in the night <laughs> until he's <laughs> till he's like in his thirties, you know, or, but it's a lot. I, I totally feel you, you know, obviously as a fellow parent with a child with uh, epilepsy and other stuff too, it's like, it's, it doesn't switch off. Mm -mm. And I think it can also activate a lot of different things emotionally and like psychologically and spiritually in a person when you come up against this stuff. It's a confrontation, is it not? Like it makes oh you, my gosh, yes. you have to reckon with it. What are you going to do? You know, right. look the other right. way, like it's your kid. Right. I'd always sort of had these, these two opposing or maybe not opposing, maybe cooperating sides of my 
of my soul. Um, I write in Bomb Shelter about how I took a personality test one on once online that was supposed to tell you your your top trait as a person, and I got two tied for first place, and they were. Uh, anxiety and cheerfulness. And I was like, that is so accurate. That is exactly who I am. But, you know, once this happened with my son and some other things that I write about in the book, and I should probably say this, this book is not all about my journey with my son. It's about a lot of different things, but I had a lot of things kind of piling up and happening at once that really put those two forces more in opposition or more in a tug of war than they had ever been in before, where the dread part of my mind, the part of the little human part of my mind that's like, don't worry, if I can just forecast every catastrophe, we'll be fine. I'm going to just think ahead to every possible disaster. That part of my mind was running away out of control, trying to get control over the situation. And then the other part of my mind that has always been there where I'm, you know, kind of generally a happy-go-lucky person and I tend to look on the bright side and I'm, you know, people I think describe me as sort of smiley and upbeat. That part was just struggling to try to get back up to the surface because that's when I feel like myself. So I was really kind of stuck between these two things and trying as hard as I could. And I think this is where Bomb Shelter sort of ultimately lands, but trying as hard as I could to get back to being a person who wakes up in the morning feeling generally optimistic. Yeah, but it's no mean feat when Mm -mm. you're staring at like things like mortality, um, right? Or you're staring at things like, wow, this is not like a temporary condition for my son. Like this is a life changer, and yep, like we're in it together as for as long as I'm here, you know. And I'm gonna, uh, and if possible, from the afterlife, (laughs) exactly. I will haunt beyond. I will haunt from beyond if if at all possible. But you know, it's a period of adjustment and acceptance I've found. And it's not always easy. Like even if you get to a place where I think you inevitably have to get to just to be able to function in life and deal with the responsibilities of parenthood and being an adult, there can still be regressions, you know? Like some days oh, yeah. you, you feel that resistance or you'll just be like so pissed, you know? Mm-hmm. And then other days you're like, well, I don't know. I could be more sanguine about it. I'll be like, well, this is, you know, everybody's got stuff. This is what's happened. What's the point yeah. of resisting? If I resist it, I'm just making it worse. You know, right. it's one of those things. And so it's a little bit of fluctuation back and forth. And I think that's what you're talking about here is like oh, yeah. s- struggling between those poles and trying to get your equilibrium back somehow. Yeah. And being the kind of person who, you know, generally I look around and I see signs of good in the world. I see you know, I work in, like you do, in a creative field. So I'm surrounded by things that are beautifully made by people who really care. And I live in a beautiful part of the country where we have, you know, trees with leaves on them and dogs and turtles and donkeys and all these wonderful things. I generally look around and go, isn't this world amazing? But when something happens that is so awful, it it shifts your perspective. And I found myself looking around going, instead of, isn't this amazing? isn't this terrifying? Like, think of all the horrible things that have just been right there, ready to happen at any moment and still could. And that's just, that's not a way to live. No. That's not sustainable. No, but it's also like reality on a certain level. Like there's a Mm -hmm. passage in the book that haunted me a little bit. I think we're, and forgive me if I'm misremembering, but it's like the, you're thinking back to when your kids were little and your daughter hit her head on the window. Yeah. Right. And like bro- broke some glass. And then yeah, it's like, she, 
she was wrestling with with her brother and she was like baby i mean one and a half two maybe and they were wrestling near a window on the first floor of our house like inches above grass it would have been fine but she knocked into the window broke it like left a hole in the window the size of her head and then bounced right back into the rug and when i walked in and found them and they were like oops we broke the window it was clear she was fine everything was fine it was all good but that night when i went to sleep i had a dream very very vivid dream that it had happened almost the exact same way except that instead of on the first floor they were on the second floor and instead of bouncing back in she bounced out and my brain being a human brain and a storytelling brain that's like oh here ready to sketch out those details for you you know gave me this horrific story which i then responded to emotionally and had all the panic that comes with something horrible like that actually happening so that's one of the one of the ways my brain tends to run away with me yeah me too and i think like i could be a little bit defensive about like being like like laughed at or called like paranoid or like you're overthinking it or i remember in college going on this big road trip with my friends and i grew up in one of these midwestern suburbs where like the cops were like like teenagers were the only show in town so like they were that was their fun it was their sport was to like chase us and uh i remember being on this trip and i like you know we had drugs and you know it was college stuff but i was like we parked on the side of the road to camp basically and I was like, we we have to bury the drugs. I remember this. Like I was like, I was like, I was like, give me the pot. I'll bury it. I know where it is, but we're not going to have it in the car because if the cops come and my friends are just like, dude, like chill. And I was like, no, I'm thinking. I, I still right. feel like I was thinking. Like you should bury the drugs. Someone should be doing the thinking, and this is what is going to help us. Yes. This is how we like evolutionarily developed. Human beings have the you know we don't have venom or claws we have the ability to think ahead to a disaster and therefore avoid it that's what we got that's what we got and i think like you know you have this protective instinct as a parent and i think a self-protective instinct just as a human being like we're, this is how we're wired biologically as a species right we're trying to protect ourselves from danger and we have these right. fight, fight or flight things happening what i think is interesting and what i think your book speaks to so well is like how one reacts once like there's been a breach <laughs> yeah you know or once there's been a realization of one of these fears so it's it's not in that, the, it's not in the realm of imagination anymore like this is actual and that is so well put that yeah. it's a breach it's like yeah it's a breach and i you know I, I write in bomb shelter about trying to use all the tools i had and that i knew of to try to patch the breach up <laughs> and and fix it and go back to how things were before you know i had read everywhere that like meditation is so good for you if you <laughs> meditate every day you will be a peaceful person and i was like okay i'm gonna meditate <laughs> but i couldn't do it on my own i had to use the guided thing in my ear because my brain how do people quiet their brain i don't know but you know one of the chapters in bomb shelter that serves as a little bit of comic relief is this dialogue between the guided meditation voice and all the you know you are you're a rock and a stream and my actual brain voice which is just ping-ponging these nutty thoughts back at the meditation because i couldn't calm it down and i was trying you know that was a tool i had people say meditation works so i was like i can fix it with this i <laughs> right. tried everything you right. know scotch yeah anything i mean i'm a meditator too i mean you try anything you can to sort of i don't know 
like you say, like daily attempts to restore equilibrium. You yeah. Know, and people, get... people say, you know, make a gratitude list that will make you feel better. So for, there was a period of time where I would get up and I was writing down just every single thing. I was like, these Cheerios are so crunchy and not stale. I am grateful for my crunchy, not stale Cheerios. I am grateful that the toothpaste there's still some in here like just reaching for everything i could i could reach for yeah yeah i mean and you know what i don't think that's the worst way in the way to go in the world as long as you're not trying things that are like damaging to yourself or something you know right. but it's like yeah like i'll throw the kitchen sink at it i'll try anything if you think you know if there's any kind of evidence that it can be a benefit like i'll at least give it a shot yeah and you know i want to talk too about the uh, like a little bit more about this polarity that you described in your character between cheerfulness and anxiety and something I've been thinking a lot about like personally as well is like trying to assess like the level of my like morbidity is that yeah. a word morbidity more yeah. yeah like I like I read something recently that stuck with me that I keep quoting back at people but it was like a line or a line from maybe an interview that Terry Tempest Williams did the author and somebody was like basically like being like terry like wow you're really like aren't you like you're kind of obsessed you know with death or obsessed with grief or <laughs> and she said no i'm not like i just refuse to look away yeah and i said and i found myself nodding that's i was great. like i was like oh that is lovely and like i think that's what's happening with you i think you're like you you kind of you're good humored about it and you kind of knock yourself in that like self-deprecating way but I do think that you have to be aware of the service that you're performing for a reader by sort of uh, moving through these things on their behalf, taking a careful look at them, you know, giving them the benefit of these crafted, you know, essays or memoiristic essays after you've had time to gain perspective and had, had have had time to do six drafts or 20 drafts or whatever it is. But yeah. do you know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're serving... You're serving the reader in that way. You're kind of like the explorer going, okay, I'm going in. Like, let's yeah. take a look at this. And yeah. maybe this will help you out or maybe you won't have to do as much of the heavy lifting yourself, you know? I mean, other books have done that for me. I was very aware as I was writing Bomb Shelter that I was doing something that has been done for me before. In fact, there's a, a chapter near the beginning called Firestarter where I write about when I, how when I was little, I went through a phase where I read all these books where people died. And like you said, you could look at that and go, well, that was a morbid kid. But I, I mean, I wasn't a morbid kid. I just was aware. Like once I became aware of death as a thing that was around us, I thought, well, I better take a look at this. Like, let me just, it doesn't feel good. Like I, it wasn't like I got to the end of, you know, Lois Lowry's A Summer to Die and went, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm not insane, but for, for that reason. But um, I got to the end of it and thought, okay. So that's what that feels like. It's another part of that human self-protective mechanism. My brain going, if you can just understand it, you will be ready. Nothing can surprise you. Just look at it and understand it. And that I was aware as I was writing this book that I was sort of doing that same thing for the reader. I'm also wondering about your family and like your genetic line and all these scientists and doctors and that feels like a doctorly scientific approach. There's something about that to it, to me. It might have, it might have been. I mean, it, I was an adult 
by the time I realized that other people's dinner table conversation was not the same as ours. Like at my dinner table, my dad might, you know, cheerfully over a baked potato recount the surgery he did in someone's brain that day. And my mom might be like, was there a lot of pus from the drainage point? And my dad would, <laughs> you know, there was. And I, it, I didn't know until I was out in the world and around other people's dinner tables and got married and was around my in-laws that other people don't talk about their injuries and their guts and other people's injuries and guts in a social conversation. That's not normal or not as common as I thought it was. Well, so, just to have exposure yeah, maybe, to like the gallows humor that doctors often have. And like, I've, I've always noticed like every doctor I've ever known has a certain detachment around death talk, yeah, disease, you know, yeah. like if it's there's very a ma matter of fact, that's yeah. I mean, it's their day to day. And so I think having exposure to that, but also having like the wiring of a writer and maybe a more anxious temperament or whatever, like that's an in interesting juxtaposition. Like that's, it feels like that's, that's Mary Laura. You know, like that's the, <laughs> yeah. that's the soup right there. Right. Right. That's the, uh, that's the special recipe that created my brain. Well, another thing about this book, um, and a continuation of an earlier, uh, thing that we discussed, you know, this mosaic quality and the, the, the kind of working a miniature, but making it all stick together that I really appreciated about it was the way that I could feel the, I could feel the act of creation and creative discovery happening as I read. And I, I might be overstating this, but like, you know, you, you start at like a, the point of origin for the book, like your son's seizure, you know, and then from there it sort of goes out in a lot of different directions, but there's always a build or a sense of the, the one that you're reading, building on the ones that you've already read, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of structural thing happening. But there's also like life intervening in ways that almost seem like a little bit mystical to me where it's like, well, and then we have, we find ourselves in a pandemic. Don't we, Mary Laura? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. like, like did the, did the writing of the book happen after that? Or was this in the, like, were you uh, midstream and suddenly like, wow, thank you. Like world and universe for providing right. me with more fodder. You know what I'm right. saying? How thematically on the nose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I love the way you put that. And I like, you know, I am aware that people read at different rates and people read with different levels of attention. And I, being the, the dork that I am and the English major that I am, I did want there to be for the person who reads very closely, for the person who reads with a pencil in their hand to go have a discussion with their book club or whatever. I did want there to be all sorts of little Easter eggs and like you said, signs of creation and little threads that weave their th way throughout so that if you're, if you're there to notice them, you will notice them, but they're not like, it's not like you've missed some key experience if you don't. Um, so thank you for saying that. But the, so the pandemic, this book, um, I started writing in 2019 and I started, the book begins in past tense, you know, here is an event that happened in the past and I, I it stays in the past tense as I'm writing. So I was writing throughout 2020 and into the spring of 2021, but the book ends in the spring of 2021. So it ends in present tense. The time catches up to me. And that pandemic, I swear, I thought at first, maybe I might be able to leave it out. Remember at the beginning when we were all, it was March and we were like, well, hopefully this will be over by April. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just going to postpone my spring break by a few weeks and it'll be fine. Um, I thought maybe it would be just a blip and it would be short and I could just get back to things. But as time went on, it was clear that was not the case. But, you know, like you said, it did, it did 
sort of work thematically. It doesn't come up in the book until toward the end. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's like a pandemic book, but it does come up near the end. As I'm wrestling with the whole idea of my children leaving the nest, which to me has, even when they were babies, that used to boggle my mind. I used to think about the fact that one day they would be big adult-sized people and they would pack their stuff and go. And it would just blow my mind. Um, so that had been on my mind for a long time. But then when they became teenagers and they got into high school and that was getting really close, I was becoming a little obsessed with it. So I was starting to sort of have this recurring thought of, I want them back. I want them back. If I could just have them back. And I was having nightmares. I write about in Bomb Shelter how I had this this weird recurring nightmare where there's this like dark vacuum tunnel sucking them away from me. And I'm <laughs> fighting it with my hands going, no, give them back. And then the pandemic happened. And it gave them back. <laughs> and I was like, so it's your fault. This is what happened. Magic? Right. <laughs> um, but I really did get them back. But what that did for the book was it gave me an opportunity to wrestle with, okay, so here you go. You got what you wanted. Is that what you wanted? Is that good? Is it good to get them back when they're this age? Are they supposed to be stuck back at home? Is it actually better to have them under your wing where you say you wish they were? Or do you now realize this isn't where they belong? Right. They need to be out in the world. And of course, I come to the conclusion they need to be out in the world. Thanks, pandemic, for teaching me that painful lesson. <laughs> Listen, I think, you know, pandemics has been hard on all of us. Pandemic has been hard on children. Mm. I, in particular, sympathize with parents who have teenagers. I think that age is maybe in some ways the hardest because you're so oh. social then. You want to be independent. We I have, don't know. I don't know. I mean, little kids I, I do I think health. like the age of, I think maybe like... I think both ends of the kid spectrum, like the little kids, yeah. kids who were in kindergarten in the pandemic. How do you do pandemic kindergarten? I don't even, that's, it defeats the purpose of kindergarten entirely. And then I think maybe the kids in the middle were okay. And then the, the kids who were getting toward the end of high school, which, which is like my son, you know, they just missed a big chunk of milestones yes. and developmental stages. And that last part of living at home where you begin to separate from your parents so that you can, as they say, lovingly detach and go off into your world. They couldn't do that. They were all stuck at home. And then the ones who did manage to get out and go to college during the pandemic had this horrific house arrest style freshman year experience where you know some of, at some schools the kids couldn't leave their rooms they were going to class but it was on a computer they couldn't socialize normally it was just yeah pitiful it's just like so at odds with what you typically would be doing at that age yeah you know? yeah so heart goes out to every like 19 year old <laughs> i'm like... telling you like i almost wish i know this wouldn't have worked i know there are all sorts of logistical reasons this would have been a problem but i almost wish if we could have gone back and known how long it was going to drag on, that we could have just hit a pause button on everybody's education and say, sabbatical. Right. Everybody go, you know, help your community or do yard chores or do something. And when this is over, we'll try school again. Yeah. Because that just. Well, yeah, my, my son's in kindergarten. My daughter's in going into sixth grade. And the kindergartners in particular have all been having trouble. That's what the teachers say. Like they're yeah. just. They've come, they've come back and they're in class, but like they're all behind and like, I don't know. It's a of big adjustment. They, they were just at yeah. home playing with toys for two years. You know? <laughs> um, 
So I want to talk about a particular character or person that you write about in this book that moved me and that is somewhat related to, you know, what we're talking about uh, parenthood wise and stage of life wise. And that is the screaming woman on the quad. Because <laughs> uh, my one fictional character. Yeah. You, there's like, you know, you're just, well, why don't I have you describe it? You wrote the yeah. book. I mean, but talk okay. about the screaming okay. woman on the quad. Okay. The screaming woman on the quad. This was at one of the very first college tours I had taken my oldest child on. So new to me to be in the position of being a parent on a college tour. And before we set off on foot with our group and our tour guide, the admissions person gave a little talk to the whole group. And the theme of the talk more or less was, dear parents, I know that deep inside you are all overbearing monsters and I need you to not be that way. Don't, and there, deep within this, there's a very valid lesson. His point was, don't drag your child to go visit a school just because that school means something to you. Don't make them go to your alma mater. Don't make them go to, you know, only Ivy League schools because you think that's important. Listen to your child, take them to places that are a good fit for them, and then you will have a productive tour. I get that. But as a cautionary tale, he said, for example, the other day we had a tour group in here and it was very clear that the daughter had no interest in being here, that her mother had dragged her here. It was all about the mom wanting the kid to come here. And at a certain point on the tour, they got separated from the rest of the group. And when we caught up with them, they were standing in the middle of the quad having a screaming match. And everyone in my tour group was like, oh, gasp, a screaming match with a teenager? And, and I thought, like, why are we gasping? This is not hard to imagine. Um, and that was meant to be the, you know, the cautionary tale. And and, and when somebody behind me said, can you imagine? And I was like, I absolutely can imagine. And so this chapter in Bomb Shelter, it's the one and only piece of fiction in the whole book. I basically imagine, I go back to that morning and I imagine who is this mother? Who is this daughter? And what brought them to the point where they were screaming? What, you know, how did this tour come to be planned? What did the mother have to do to make this happen? Did she have to take off work? What's her work situation like? You know, was her boss terrible and mean to her when she requested the time off what is her relationship like with her daughter have they been super super close all along and just now the daughter's getting into some of that adolescent phase where she's pulling away and this is breaking the mother's heart and the daughter is so sick of being trapped with her mother for three days which is totally normal and you know i put myself sort of in that empathetic space of okay let's imagine a way that screaming could happen that doesn't mean these people are monsters. That just means these people are people and you have walked up to them in a weak moment. And now you're telling that story like a cautionary tale. It also made me think like, how many times have I been someone's cautionary tale? Like who is out there telling a story about some moment that they witnessed with me where like, that's not who I am, but that's who I was in that moment. That's the screaming woman on the quad. Yeah. And we've all been the screaming woman on the quad. There's a screaming woman on the quad inside of all of us. I, that's what I love. She, about. she lives in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She does. And I think the most memorable, like this is just the, the piece of your book that I will carry with me um, most prominently. It's like the stickiest part for me because it articulated something to me that I have deeply felt but could never find the words for. You know how like a book will do that. And you'll be like, ah, oh, like, thank you for saying this. And it's the passage, which I believe is in this 
this uh, chapter about this line. And I think it's Maya Angelou who said, like, if someone shows you who they are, believe them, mm-hmm. which is a uh, it's like an incantation on social media. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that line quoted on social by someone who is self-righteously like taking someone down or making some sort of political stand or whatever the case may be. And what you say is, actually, I'm a little uncomfortable with this because what if you're just like the screaming woman on the quad and you're just having a really shitty day? That's not who that person is. That's just who that person is in that moment. Right. And I found myself going, yes, this is why I've always been revolted by people posturing like that because it's not true. Right. But yet I like... Listen, if somebody's running around in Ku Klux Klan paraphernalia, believe who they are. Like I get it. <laughs> I get it on right. that level. Like if somebody holds it holds on on many levels. Yes. It's just not airtight. But if somebody is an awful human being, short-tempered, mean, uh, says something just rude and insulting, takes your parking spot even, like somebody, you know, that could be me. That could be you. Oh. That, it could be any of us. Yes. And it's it like, could be any of us having a rough moment, or it could be any of us that just going along our evolutionary journey as a human being, and we're just not very far along yet. Like maybe we were just at the shitty human being stage of our development. And, you know, if you lock somebody into that perception and you're like, I saw this thing happen, that person is terrible forever, you're never allowing people to, to you're never giving credit to people for becoming who they become. And then if we're never going to give people credit for becoming who they become, then what's the incentive for any of us to keep developing as humans? Like the whole point is we try to get better. We try to be nicer. We try to do better, you know? Yeah. No, I think like the stakes that are set out, especially in our digital lives where I think we're at enough of a safer, like a quote unquote safer move to sort of like lash out, you know, in ways that we wouldn't in person. I just think the day after dayness of that, like constantly yeah. bearing witness to these sorts of like blanket statements and judgments, and it creates a culture of fear and suspicion and like resentment it does. and like everyone, you know. And then it also, I think, incentivizes more of that same behavior, you know, so you can be on the winning team. And I don't know. I don't think it's healthy it for totally anybody. Does. I don't think it's healthy. And so I just deeply appreciated you calling that out. Like respect to Maya Angelou. I think I understood what she meant. I don't think she. Oh yeah. I don't think she she's, meant. She's not wrong. No. There's just another little caveat to it. Yeah. Perhaps. So anyway, it's I don't know. Just a deep relief to read that. And uh, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's not like I'm walking around being perfectly empathetic all the time. I am very often just a reactive ball of rage. But that's kind of what I'm saying in the book is I have to consciously take myself through the exercise of empathy so that I'm not a ball of rage just burning myself to ash all the time. Like, you know, another example I give is like when I'm in traffic and I hear a siren, I pull over so fast and so far. I mean, I'm in the ditch to get out of the way of the ambulance or the fire truck. And I, I used to, and I still do sometimes, if someone doesn't pull over and I see like this SUV just idling at the yellow light and the, and the ambulance is coming behind them, I will have this burning hot flash of rage at that driver who won't get out of the way. Like, you asshole, oh, yeah. get out of the way. And it, and it, you know, I mean, it, I keep, I'm gesturing like I'm on fire because that's what it feels like. And I can't go around on fire with rage at everybody all the time. So one of the things I like, 
little exercises I put my through myself through when that happens is all right, why would you not pull over when you hear an ambulance? Well, maybe that person never has dialed 911. They've never looked at their hands and seen their finger push 911. They've never been in the back of an ambulance with their child or their loved one and and been going, hurry, hurry, run the light, get us there. Maybe they are so lucky and it is amazing that they are so lucky. They've never had to know what that feels like. And I hope one day when they do that all the cars get out of their way. Right. But I have to ma- I have to consciously take myself through that because my first gut reaction is get out of the way, you asshole. Yeah. Or like it could be for me, it's like I'm thinking of like, speaking of being a ball of rage (laughs) or just like a jerk you know i'll have like some social function and i'll be like oh we're gonna see so and so there like like that person just grates on me or like (laughs) i just feel like so and so like this is just superficial or whatever like litany of complaints i will offer up to my poor wife or whatever and then Mm -hmm. i will get there holding all of this see this person or these people and wind up having a good time. And it's fine. And it's yeah. fine. And then I go, what? Like, I'm wrong. I don't even agree with myself <laughs> half the time. All this conviction. And for what? You know, like, Right. I often don't agree with myself. No. It's like, and, you know, like, and yet I'm like, I look back and I'm like, wow, I like gave like an Oscar level performance of, of certainty. You know, like <laughs> it was all there. I mean, people would have, I, I would have believed me, you know, in the moment. And now look at me. I have no idea right. what I'm talking about. <laughs> Over and over again, this is the case with me. So hopefully what it is doing over time is like fostering a healthy mistrust of, uh, you know, my uh, certainties and pieties. But, you know, it doesn't stop them from happening, unfortunately. It's still, it's a cyclical thing. So last thing I want to talk to you about is bookstore stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm always fascinated. I feel like everybody who writes, everybody who works in publishing probably should have worked in a bookstore. It seems like a really healthy thing to do. And if yeah. I if I were working in publishing as like some executive and I were hiring, that would be the that would be like a, a great like litmus or a great like standard. Like try to find yeah. book, try to find former booksellers. Right. Like a training thing. Like let's let's send everybody all these little sweet publishing assistants. Let's go send them on a six month stint in a bookstore. Right. Like work on the front lines, you know. Right. And so I understand it at that level. You know, because you get to interface with actual customers. You get to read a lot and have exposure and hand sell books that you yourself love. You get to write the little, what do you call those cards? Shelf talkers. Shelf talkers. <laughs> uh, you get to write the shelf talkers and, you know, all the kind of minutia and, and like, you know, all the small jobs of a bookseller. And it's got to be instructive at the level of, well, now I'm a publishing executive or an acquiring editor and... I have a maybe a, a more attuned sense of what makes readers happy or whatever. You know, I can see how that would be instructive. My question for you is, how did it help you as a writer? Oh gosh, a, a ton. The main thing I think the the most important way that it helped me as a writer was it demystified who writers are. I mean, a, and I should probably specify what my job was. So I worked at, at Parnassus Books in Nashville, and I was. My title changed a lot, but I was basically the marketing director. So it was my job to sort of figure out how we would market and publicize what we had to offer the community. And a big part of that was events. So we're, you know, we're a common stop on book tours. People come through Nashville all the time. And back, you know, prior to the pandemic, we the store had, you know, 
pretty much an event every night. Like there was there was something every night. So every night of the week, there's some great writer coming through town to talk about the book that they've written, which means I was constantly in contact with people who had done this thing I was doing and that I was kind of chipping away at in my in my own way. And I could look at them and see, you are just a human being. You don't have an extra brain or set of hands. You're not you know, a billionaire, you don't have, you don't have anything that I don't have as an operating functional creature. And if you can do it, then I should be able to do it. And if you, and I would have these fantastic conversations, people with people, I ran the blog for the, st- for the store for a while. And then I also, until last year, um, hosted an interview show on Nashville public television. So it was also my job to have these conversations with people on television. And to be in conversation with other people who have thought through the kind of things that I think through when I'm doing my work, it it doesn't just demystify it, which is fantastic, but it also, I mean, that that fed me. Like, as you know, you can ask anything you want in an interview. So if I was struggling with like, I can't ever figure out how to end <laughs> right. a story, you know, I would yeah. be in my interview and go, talk to me about how you end your story (laughs) and look what I just did. I, you know, have gotten exactly what I needed out of that conversation. So it was huge, hugely helpful in that way. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's funny too, when you do these things like in the aggregate and people ask you like, well, what did you learn? And you can point to something like, like, uh, like you just did as a specific, but I also have the hunch that like, wow, like I don't even fully know how much I learned because there's almost 800 interviews at this point. I'm sure I've learned a ton. Yeah. You know, and it's a it's a hard thing to stop doing for that reason because it's like, right. wow, I'm just getting this great education and like yeah. you know, you have access to all these smart people and the demystifying part of it I, I get too. Like that might be as useful of a lesson to learn for anyone trying to do anything. Yeah. You know, it's just so much workaday stuff, you know, so much yep. ordinary people sticking with it and Maybe, I don't know, like it's funny to think about writers who really do it at a high level consistently for a long time. And it might be like, I think it's like easy to think when you're on the outside looking in that it's like some grand gesture that they're making that you're not making or some big advantage that they have that you don't have, like DNA wise or otherwise. Mm -hmm. I think where I'm at now is that I'm like, it's probably like small bore differences yeah. In terms of how they discipline their day or manage their time or respond to failure or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think like that's what it's. It's, a, it's it, continuing to show up and, yeah. and do it. I, my daughter, my other teenager is a uh, is an actor. And I say that even though she's not a working actor, she is a student, but she is in the part of her acting career where she hasn't begun working professionally yet, but she is in it and she studies it. And she, you know, this is her life. And one of the things that she has observed in what I have done in my work is that need to go be around people who do that thing and just absorb the workaday work of it. So, you know, on her life plan, it's like, at what point can I get myself to a place where I'm around other people who do this every day? Even if I'm not interacting with them in any sort of official capacity, I'm just in the space where they are. It makes a difference. Huge. And it's hard to, I think it's hard to get as a writer. It's hard to get as an actor too, but at least like with actors, there's a collaborative aspect to right. putting on a show or you go to like the actor studio classes or whatever. And they're, right. you know, for me, it was like getting my MFA and suddenly being in a room with other people who do this and just being like, yeah. oh, like, oh, there yeah. you are, you know? And 
Um, Although I think we get that. I think we can get that online a little bit. I mean, you kind of have to be careful how you build your your Twitter neighborhood and, <laughs> and your online interactions because that can also be like a flaming garbage dump. But I think if you sort of carefully build your your following and who you follow among people who are smart and good and and are at least living a little bit of their work life online so that you can see it. Yeah. You can get a little bit of that. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think it's like super useful not just at the level of like community and like like the like bridging, you know, the divide and feeling less lonely in your work and in your aspirations, but it's also like maybe the most effective way to learn. Like yeah. go, go straight to the source. I mean, if you're a young actor, right. I, I can only imagine like you know, just to be around actors who have done it and are, are doing it and just be able to sit there and listen to them and ask them right. questions. And ones who have failed, like to be around people who are, you know, it, all of us in our creative work are failing constantly. You know, you fail much more than you succeed. I remember this was, this was years ago. Stephen King came to Nashville and I was part of the team putting on the event. Like it, he was at the Ryman Auditorium, which is this big music venue here. And so like I went and stood in for him and sound check and like tapped on the mic and pretended to be <laughs> Stephen King. And at the end of the night, I realized like I had ridden with someone there and I didn't have a ride home and it was downtown Nashville. So I couldn't get an Uber. Um, so I, I got a ride with uh, Ann Padgett was going to drive me home. And she was also driving Donna Tart, who had come into town to meet Stephen King. So Donna Tart and I are sitting in the back of the car and uh, Ann from the front seat was like, hey, how's your how's your book project going? This is when I was working on I Miss You When I Blink. And I was like, Ugh. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know if it's coming together into a book or it's coming together into a pile of trash I'm going to throw away. And Donna Chart next to me in the back seat goes, welcome to the club. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, this is insane. But also like, yes, at any level of success, you are also failing all the time and being able to see other people do that makes you as a beginning or working creative person not abandon ship when you fail yeah yeah i mean like this is the theory that i was just recently uh noodling with like in my mind and in conversation with somebody is like i think maybe the the writers who do it at a high level for a long time and have some success and you know you admire them it's not that they don't fail it's that they just maybe don't get knocked off course for as long or they accept yeah. they accept the failure as part of the job yes. more readily who, than others, you know? Who who was the actress on Saturday Night Live who played the Debbie Downer character? Do you know who I'm talking Is about? Is it Rachel Dratch? Yes. Okay, there's a podcast with Rachel Dratch and I, I feel horrible that I don't remember who she was talking to. It might have been Conan O'Brien, but I'm not sure. Um, but she said this fantastic thing. He, he was complimenting her on her longevity in the creative world and how she had, you know, made it to the pinnacle of the comedy world, which is SNL. And, and she said, and he was basically asking like, what do you have that other people didn't have? Like, why did you make it? And other people didn't. And she said, you know, I don't know that I necessarily had something other people didn't have, but other people kept giving up and going home and I stayed. So, you know, throughout whatever her path was, you know, comedy school, or I don't know if she did UCB or Groundlings or whatever, but she was like, people would stick with it for a little while and get frustrated and leave and go home. And I just stayed. And if you stay at a, at a certain point, you're the one left. So <laughs> it's, like, it's a war of attrition. You go to SNL, right. <laughs> well, I notice a little bit of theatricality now that I'm hearing about your daughter, uh, both in you, like in your delivery, like you have like a kind of 
you know, there's a little bit of like, I hope this isn't the wrong way to put it, like funny girl, like you're funny. You know, I can feel like a performative thing, but I, I think more germane to the conversation is that I can feel like a, there's a performative aspect to your writing style. It's that conversational thing. Um, it, like monologue might not be the exactly the right word, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, the apple doesn't fall that far. So maybe like, yeah. and I, I think I've actually articulated this before where it's like, yeah, it's like writers are like introverted performing artists who are just like performing for the screen or the page, you know, the, the computer screen, you know, at home. Yeah. Yeah. Is, does that hold true for you? Oh, totally. I mean, what, you got to remember when you're writing a book, you're not just in the act of writing it for yourself. And then you get to the end and go, yay, I did it. And you put it away in a drawer. This is, this is meant to go out and be something people purchase and consume and hopefully tell their friends about and, and walk away going, that was an enjoyable experience. I am putting on a show. I am, I'm trying to entertain you and I'm trying to give you a, a good story and a good experience and light up all your emotional circuits and make you feel, I mean, yeah, make you feel like you've been to a show, not just like, oh, I read these words on the page. Okay, I guess you got the point across. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Why, why, why are all these elemental lessons something that I just need to be, I, I need to have them spoon fed to me over and over again. That's why I host this show. Uh, are you working on another book or are you just celebrating this one? You're taking some time. I'm doing neither. I'm still working on this one. I'm in the life cycle of this one where I go out and I talk about it with people and I get to have good conversations like this. And I go on tour and I talk to book clubs and this part, I mean, I haven't done this this many times, but if last time is any indicator, I have to get through the full life cycle of one book before I'm ready to start the next. And I'm not finished with this one yet because I'm still out talking about it. So I, re I remember in 2019 when I was out on the road talking about I Miss You When I Blink, all the events that are in Bomb Shelter had happened. In fact, they were very recent. But when people would ask, do you know what you're going to write about next? I was like, literally no idea. <laughs> no, could not tell you. Maybe I'll write a novel. No, no clue. Yeah. It was all right there, but I had to finish finish the life cycle of I Miss You When I Blink and put it away and go, well, that was good, and then look around and have some time to breathe and go, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write about all that stuff that just happened. So I think that's the headspace where I am right now. I'm so in, still in the life of this book that I just can't, I can't move into the life of the next one yet. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, how long does that I mean? I ask this out of self-interest because I have a book coming out in May. Okay. How long does the life cycle last? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's coming out in May. Are, have you started writing your next thing yet? Yeah. I mean, yeah, but okay, it's like, okay. it's, it's like researchy. I started a long time ago. So I started okay. before even I think the book that's coming out sold. Oh, okay. So do you, do you know what I'm saying? So, I yeah, so I don't you're in a different place than I am then because you're, you, you do what I'm so I'm jealous when people can do this. I'm such a like one thing at a time person. I wish I could do what a lot of my friends do, which is like they turn in the book to the editor to be edited and they immediately turn to their next project. And then this book comes back and they're kind of going back and forth. And I, I can't. This is my I'm, first try at this. So don't okay. give me too much credit. I think like, <laughs> I think because there were, there are many years, like my first novel and my second novel it's like 15 years between them, 16 years. Okay. So I mean, like, so, I'm, I'm like hedging against that. I'm like, okay, what do I got to do differently so that I can right. get another book done before this much time to, you know, passes. So, so you have a book coming out in May, but you've already started on the, I mean, I, that's great. 
I know. That's amazing. But you, I do. Maybe f- you won't have this long dead time in between like I do, where you're like, no clue. But I do feel like you have to like honor the book that you're putting out into the world, and you got to do the, you got to go through the paces, do the events, do the conversations, yeah. talk to people about it, and try to advocate right. for it. And I guess some like some people don't like that though. Like some people really hate this part, and I totally get that. But and maybe it's because of my past work experience and working in sort of that publishing adjacent book selling world that I find this part interesting. Like I am interested in the part of the life cycle where the book actually meets the reader. To me, that's interesting. And I want to pay attention to it. And I want to be a part of it. I don't want that to happen without me in the room. I want to be there. But <laughs> I, I know there are lots of people who hate that part and are like, oh, get this over with as fast as I can. I have a little bit of that, but I also feel an obligation to fend for my work you know like you did all this i mean because who else will that's it's what yours I mean. it's yours you, know? and you, you did all this work to put it out there you gotta... it can't advocate for itself it's a book that's right that's right so i'm gonna give it some time we'll see how long i mean hey the the phone might stop ringing <laughs> shortly <You know>? like, <laughs> i might be like okay i'm gonna give myself six months to fend for this book and by like <laughs> by june 1st i'll be like okay so on to the all next right, six yeah. days <laughs> but i fought hard Right. Um, Six great days. Well, hey, I have enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed your book. And thank you. I'm glad we got to feature it in the book club. I know you've been traveling a lot and doing a lot of the publicity and, you know, like we've been talking about the, the, the talking about it a lot lately. And so I appreciate your good cheer and good energy in answering my questions. Well, thank you. They were great questions. This was really fun. Okay, you guys, that was Mary Laura Philpott. And her new memoir, In Essays, is called Bomb Shelter, available now from Atria. You can find her online at MaryLauraPhilpot.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at MaryLauraPH. One more time, the book is called Bomb Shelter, an official TNB book club selection. Go get your copy right away. It is good company. So it is nice to be back hosting this show. I forgot to say that at the top after being the guest last week. My thanks once again to Steve Almond, friend and colleague for so ably sitting in as the host. The Other People podcast is offered freely. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but you are now. All episodes of this show, almost 800 episodes and counting, The entire archive is made available to listeners for free. It's a listener-supported show. The continuation of this show depends on people like you. So if you listen and you enjoy, I hope you will support the show. You can do that for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will wish you a happy birthday. I will send you a note in the mail and so on over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. It also really helps the show if you rate it and review it wherever you listen be that Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever it is, rate the show and review the show. It helps other people find the show. My new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. Go get a copy if that suits you, if the mood strikes you. 
The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It is free. It's a great way to listen. Go get the Other People with Brad Listy app wherever you get apps. The Other People Podcast also has its own YouTube channel. The entire archive of this show is available on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, go over to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and subscribe. It's free. So I think that's it. I think that's it for the week. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Thanks again to everybody who bought my book and has shown me such kindness. I really, really appreciate it. And I will be back next Wednesday with another episode, another conversation with another person who made a book. <laughs>